Thank you, Melissa. I appreciate that. And uh, as has been mentioned several times, we did have a great Sunday celebrating that truth last week. And it's all wonderful to know that we celebrate that truth 52 weeks out of the year. Uh, we serve a risen Savior. We had uh, just a great celebration service with the Wesleyan Church last week. It's just a, a wonderful time of fellowship and worship together. And, you know, one of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that God has created from that a new spiritual organism called the body of Christ. And it is made up of every true believer in Jesus Christ. And so as such, I mean, we ought to be able to have fellowship and, and be able to support and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they attend a different church or a different denomination than we do. And even if that means we don't always agree on every point of doctrine or theology. Now, naturally, there does need to be a commitment to and an agreement about the essential doctrines of of God and salvation because any real fellowship has to be based on a, a true shared faith in God through Jesus Christ. And so we know that there are some... Uh, so-called churches and denominations that have never held to those core beliefs and others that have drifted so far away from them that it would not be able to do joint uh, ministry together with them. And and, uh, there are others uh, that uh, have rejected the authority and uh, of the Bible in terms of life and godliness and and that would make it difficult to truly share in ministry with them. But what I would call like-minded churches, uh, those that hold to the inspiration and the authority of Scripture and agree on the fundamental doctrines of, of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and, and the means of salvation, those are the ones that we can and should be able to cooperatively work together with for the sake of and the spread of the gospel. And I know that we already actually have plans in the work to work uh, together with uh, Wesleyan and Calvary Baptist this summer for a vacation Bible school, correct, right? They're already planning that. Uh, there'll be other opportunities for various outreaches and ministries that we can uh, work together on. And I'm looking forward to all of those opportunities. I think it's a great thing. But for today, we get to return to our study of the book of Joshua. Open up your Bibles to Joshua chapters 20 and 21, and uh, we are, of course, been following the theme of how we can have a battle-ready faith such as Joshua displayed, because this life truly is a spiritual battle. So grab your Bibles, open up, and uh, let's pray as we begin. Father God, we are, we are so grateful again for this time to be able to look into your word. God, we know and believe that you have given us the Scripture and that you speak to it individually to each of us in our hearts at our point of need. And so, God, we would pray that you would touch each of us today. May our hearts and minds be open. May we see and hear with spiritual eyes and ears today the word that you would have for us. And, God, it's my prayer that you would use me as an instrument in your hand uh, to say what you would will. God, uh, please don't let anything that I've planned hinder the message that you want to get across, but instead we ask that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so the last time we were together, we, we actually covered a, a rather huge chunk of Joshua, right? Chapters 13 through 19. And those chapters deal with the dividing of the land into the 12 territories, one for each tribe of Israel. And, and of course, the bigger tribes got bigger portions of land, the smaller, uh, lesser, but, but it was all fair and equitable that it worked out. And, and this Sunday, we're not um, going to cover nearly so big of chunk, but still a fairly good size in that we want to cover two chapters. And the theme is still the dividing out of the land, only this time not into the different major territories, but some specific cities with uh, very specific functions and purposes. And, and um, uh, both chapters 20 and 21 talk about the assignment of these cities, um, and, and what those purposes were. And I want to look at chapter 21 first and then go back to 20 because uh, the cities of chapter 20 come out of the cities from chapter 21. So uh, chapter 21 is talking about the Levites. And uh, most of you probably remember the Levites were the designated, the special tribe of Israel that was set apart and belonged to God in that special way. Uh, so they didn't get a portion of land themselves. And they were to be the ministers, the priests to God, and the ministers to the people. And so uh, they sometimes did have special duties that they would have to go to where the tabernacle uh, was housed to perform them, and later to Jerusalem, to the temple. But most of the year, they spent their time in these little home towns, home cities, performing uh, duties that uh, would be very similar to that of a pastor today. They were the ones who were supposed to teach the people the the precepts and and the ways of God so that then the people could live according to God's will and His purpose for their life. And so to do that, they needed to be scattered all throughout the country so that they would be accessible to all the people. So we read at the beginning of chapter 21, Then the heads of the household of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. So Moses had received these instructions just shortly before he died, shortly before the people would begin their conquest of the promised land. And and so they had remembered and known about about this promise from God for them. And when we hear the the phrase, you know, uh, cities and pasture lands, we we tend to think of a fairly large chunk of land, right? Because we're from South Dakota. I mean, I, I remember years ago here, a, a young couple moved to Hot Springs from California, and they attended our church, and we were having dinner together one night, and, and the, the lady told me that she grew up on a ranch in California. And I said, oh, really? Well, how big was your ranch? She said, 10 acres. 10 acres? That's not a ranch. I mean, that's, that's barely big enough to be called a hobby farm here, right? In South Dakota, if you want a ranch, you've got to have hundreds, even thousands of acres. I mean, we think of these huge spreads of land. So when verses like this come up and we hear that pasture land, well, we might tend to think that the Levites did end up with all kinds of property of their own. But that's not the case at all. When God gave these instructions to Moses, he also specified the size of both the city and the pasture land, and it equaled uh, about um, 3,000 feet, 3,000 feet square. 
Uh, that's not real big. The city was to be in the middle of that, and the city would be uh, two and a half blocks in size, uh, approximately, which meant that the pasture land from the edge of the city would extend out about another 500 yards. That's it. That was what they received uh, in terms uh, of the size. And, and so uh, that's more or less what we would call like, you know, a little village or a hamlet rather than a city and definitely not what we would call a big pasture land. But since most of those family would only have, uh, it says, you know, land for their cattle, but that word cattle is that doesn't even mean cows uh, as we would normally think of it. It was the, the general Hebrew word for livestock. And uh, so most of their livestock would be a couple of sheep or goats. Only a few would be rich enough for cows or maybe several families working together would have a couple of cows. So that bit of pasture was really all they needed uh, to sustain them and it was plenty for them. So that's what they received. Verse uh, 3 of Joshua 21 says, So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance these cities with their pasture lands according to the command of the Lord. And it says these cities because then it goes on to list all of the cities. And it says the sons of Israel did this because each tribe, every tribe gave the Levites four cities. So they had a total of 48 cities scattered uh, throughout uh, Israel. And the bulk of 21 is, is the list of, uh, of those cities. And again, that number, that specific number, was something that God had designated and told through Moses should happen. And that many cities then would ensure, uh, as they were evenly spaced and scattered throughout Israel, that would ensure that a priest, the Levites, they would be nearby to any of the population for that purpose of teaching. So as they wanted to learn about God and how to worship God and how to follow Him, uh, they would have that proximity to be able to do that. And at the same time, it was also uh, teaching the people the principle of taking care of the physical needs of those who would be building spiritually into their lives. See, the Levites were given these cities and, the, and that pasture land, but they were given them to live in. They didn't own any of it. Uh, they didn't get to possess any part of the land. The pastures uh, and, and the cities still belonged to the individual tribes uh, that gave them. And, and that meant that the people of those tribes were giving up space that could have been potentially used for their profit for larger herds and, and, and more productivity and more fruitfulness in order to meet the physical needs of the Levites. And so in this way, God was reinforcing uh, the value and the importance uh, of the Levites in the land and the work that they did spiritually in the lives of the people around them. And notice this was all done, it says, according to the command of the Lord. It says right from the very beginning as they entered the, the promised land, uh, they were getting established in that uh, mindset of doing things according to the way that God had commanded. At least under Joshua's strong leadership, that was the pattern that was set. And that was what was happening in the land. And Joshua knew that that would be the only way to the path of blessing. And so as a result, 
uh, of that leadership and of, of making sure they were doing things according to the commands of the Lord, uh, then Joshua was able to sum up all that God had done so far in the land. Now that the conquest is over and the division of the, the land is over, he was able to sum it up this way. So the Lord gave Israel all of the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. They had had those seven years of warfare, more time spent uh, dividing up and surveying the land and dividing it up. But as they boldly moved forward, uh, following God's commands, obeying Him and being obedient to Him, they then experienced His goodness, His blessings, His rest upon them in their lives. So do you, you want to know how in your life, in your family, that you can possess and Receive the promises that God has made for you. You must order your life according to the command of the Lord. I mean, it's really that simple and straightforward. And please understand, that does not mean that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you in this life. For nothing bad to happen, God would need to destroy this world, take care of the problem of sin, and create a new heavens, a new earth. Which, you know, sounds like a pretty good idea to me. And, and, and so uh, we know that's going to happen, but until that time, even in this broken and sin-cursed world, we can experience God's goodness as we commit ourselves to obeying Him. Sometimes His goodness may come with trials and hardships in this life. We understand that, but His goodness will be experienced even through those as we rely on Him. So that's the city of the Levites. Now let's go back and look at what we skipped in verse 20. There were six other specially designated cities that were to be established in Israel. And these six cities were going to come out of the 48 cities that were given to the Levites. And they had a very specific and practical and gracious purpose. In Joshua chapter 20, verse 2, God says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge, which I spoke to you through Moses. Now, if you listen to the news uh, much today, you've probably heard a fair amount of comment about so-called sanctuary cities here in the United States. And even though that might sound similar to a city of refuge, it's really basically the opposite of what God had designed. A sanctuary city is a place where those who are in this country illegally uh, can find help against the uh, federal employees of the ICE, the, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And, and the police departments of those sanctuary cities will not detain illegal aliens. They will not cooperate with the immigration officials who are trying to do their jobs. So in other words, uh, those are a place where someone who is here illegally can find assistance in being able to remain here illegally and carry on their activities. Well, a, a city of refuge is the exact opposite. It is a place for someone who is innocent that might have been uh, accused of murder 
to find safe harbor until he can be proven innocent in a trial. Now, Joshua chapter 20, it just kind of gives us the bare bones of of what's going here because it's just actually more about designating those cities rather than explaining in fullness what they're about. But but, uh, verse 3 kind of gives us the start of it. It says uh, uh, someone has accidentally killed someone. It says that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. So let's take a quick look at what's going on here. First, you have the manslayer. I mean, this was the guy who accidentally killed someone. Uh, Say, for instance, two guys were going out in the woods to chop down some trees to get some lumber for for, uh, building some things. And as one guy is chopping away, right, the axe handle breaks, the iron head of the axe flies off, hits the other guy in the head, and kills him. Okay? It, it, it was an accident. It, it was just a, an unintentional, terrible tragedy. However, the family of the man who died might not see it that way. They might blame the man that was doing the chopping, saying, oh, you, you did it on purpose. You're just making this up. You know, God knows the hearts of men. And he knows that in pain and grief and in the passion of the moment, it would be easy for family members to, to want to place blame and to make someone pay for this, this pain and this hurt that they are feeling. Our emotions can, can cause us to want to become, you know, judge and jury and, and executioner when someone else has done something that we think is wrong or bad. And out of anger and, and, uh, and, and hurt, we might even assign evil motives to that person's heart. You ever noticed how many times you think you know what's going on in somebody else's heart? So here you've got, you've got this issue of, of this deep pain and grief, and now we could assign evil motives that may have no basis in reality. So God set up a system uh, to make sure that an innocent person wouldn't be you know, put to death in the, in the passion of the moment for a murder that took place that was not in reality a murder, but was what in our modern language we would call manslaughter, an accidental uh, death. And, and again, you can read all the details about this in, in Numbers chapter 35. It, it gives us a lot more information than Joshua 20 here. But, but I'll just tell you, here's the way it worked. When someone was killed, then someone in the dead person's family was assigned to be the avenger of blood. You saw that phrase in just 20. The avenger of blood had to be a near relative, so it could be, you know, a son or a father or a brother or cousin or uncle, this type of thing. And that one person was given the assignment of hunting down the killer and bringing him to justice, exacting justice, right? And uh, uh, that, this kind of rule eliminated the idea of, of this impromptu uh, uh, vigilante mob, you know, posse, getting formed to, to go after this guy. Uh, you had one person, the avenger of blood. And in a perfect world, that would have meant bringing this guy in for you know, a trial to determine his guilt or innocence. But in reality, what mostly happened was the avenger of blood, if he caught this guy, would kill him. It was that eye for an eye kind of justice that was set up. So God set up these cities of refuge to protect that person. As soon as he realized that he had accidentally killed someone, 
he would flee towards the nearest city uh, of refuge, uh, oftentimes with the avenger of blood hot on his heels in pursuit. And there were six of these cities set up, as I said. There's three on either side of the Jordan River, east and west, and then one in the north, one in the south, one in, in the center uh, of both sides so that there was one fairly near uh, to wherever you were in Israel. And these cities, again, remember, were cities of the Levites. So this person would be fleeing to the priests and the, and the religious workers of the country. As soon as the manslayer got to the city of refuge, he would plead his case before the city elders, and they were required to bring him in and give him housing and, and, and safe uh, harbor. And, and then when the avenger of blood showed up, uh, the, the elders of this Levitical city, this city of refuge, would then set up a trial before the whole congregation, which usually meant all the men of legal age within that one city. But this would be done in the hometown uh, of the manslayer, okay? Whatever his hometown was, that's where this trial would take place, which meant he would be being tried by people who knew him but also most likely by people who knew the deceased person. So they would know, what, they would know this backstory and the history uh, of those people. And at that trial, uh, both sides would state their case. They would be able to um, provide any witnesses to collaborate any facts or accusations that they could. And then the congregation was required to make a decision to hand out a verdict. Was it an accident or was it murder? But back in Numbers 35 again, God gave ways for them to help determine that. They had to take into account the prior attitude and relationship of the two men involved, as well as motive and action. So, prior relationship. If there was a standing feud between those two guys, if there was this known, and this is why the trial took place in their hometown, if there was known bad blood between these guys that had never been resolved and never been taken care of, then it was considered murder unless there was verifiable witnesses who could say, absolutely, yes, this was an accident. So that's pretty good incentive to repair any broken relationships you might have, right? Uh, to, to make sure that you're, you're, you're not carrying on a feud or, or, or have bad blood between you and another person because if an accident did happen, you're guilty unless there is proof that you're innocent. Um, it was also uh, uh, considered murder if, if the man struck the other guy with any object. He said, if you have an iron object or a wooden object or a rock, or, you know, if you struck him. So this would eliminate uh, the guy from going, well, yeah, I whacked him in the head with a shovel, but I didn't mean to kill him. Uh, nope, that's still considered murder. Um, again, it's action that's involved there. Uh, the other thing would be um, you, you couldn't claim you were just wanting to teach the guy a lesson, but you didn't mean to kill him. If you, if you planned the attack, if you, what the Bible calls lie, to lie in wait for this guy, and oh, I'm going to teach that guy a lesson, and it's, yeah, I beat him up, but I didn't mean to kill him. No, if you intended harm, but it ended up in death, it's murder. And so these were the instructions uh, that, that God had given for them uh, to determine these things out. So now, if the judgment was murder, then that man was to be executed and that job fell to the avenger of blood. 
this in itself is another gracious step because, you know, now after all this time has taken place, passions have cooled down, the heat and hurt of the anger has dissipated, this one man would have to determine, could he really carry out that sentence? It was his job to do that if it was considered murder. And he had to do that. But it would lend a great deal of gravity to the situation rather than just a emotional reaction to something else. If it was determined to be manslaughter, that is a completely accidental event, then that manslayer, that person, would be allowed to live, but he had to live inside the city of refuge that he had fled to for the length of his sentence. And we'll get into the length of his sentence in a bit. He did not get to go back to his family, did not get to go back to his hometown. And in fact, even if later on, even if it's years down the road, he tries to sneak out of this city of refuge, God said that if the avenger of blood finds him, he could legally kill him then at that point because he had gone out of the city of refuge. And it was his own fault then. His blood was upon his head. He should have stayed in that city of refuge where he was uh, uh, sent. So now I've got a question for you that I want you to think about. Why the harsh judgment of capital punishment for the murderer and why should the innocent guy be stuck in this city of refuge for manslaughter when it was just an accident? Two different questions, but they both have the same answer. God did this to show and to emphatically emphasize the extreme value and sanctity of life. I'm going to read a fairly lengthy passage from Numbers 35 where it's talking about this, and it expresses this truth. God said there, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So that meant it can't be a he said, he said type of thing, you know, back and forth. There has to be witnesses collaborating this. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of the murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. So there were other capital crimes in Israel, but a family in those instances could put up a ransom to save the life of the guilty person. Not so in the case of murder. According to God, there was only one just punishment that would be accepted by him. Anything less was polluting the land with blood. 
See, he wanted them to know that life was so valuable that there was no easy out for the person who would wantonly and sinfully take the life of another person. And it was that very same reason that the man guilty of manslaughter was basically imprisoned in the city of refuge. Now, he wasn't in jail in the way that we think of it, in, in, the, in the sense of locked up in some small room. He, he would be free to live in that city with the Levites. He would be put to work. He would have his jobs, and he would live and, and, and do his things, free to move around. But he could not go outside the boundaries, which is why God specified exact boundaries uh, for each uh, of these cities. He could not go outside those boundaries. He could not return to his home or his family. You notice it said until the death of the priest, and it specifies actually the high priest. That was the length of his sentence. Whenever the high priest died, his sentence was over, and then he was free to return to his hometown and his family. Now, why? Why make him go through all that? And again, it's to show the high value of life. Even in accidentally taking another person's life, there were painful consequences to pay. You know, as all the residents of that hometown would be thinking about this, this friend of theirs that they're missing, this guy that's locked away in the city of refuge, it would also remind them of the person who had been killed. And it would underscore the value of that man's life. Now, generally speaking, by the time you got to be the high priest of the land, you were a pretty old guy. So that meant that, by and large, most times, this sentence would not be overly long. They would not be uh, stuck in that city of refuge for an overly lengthy period of time. As soon as the high priest died, they were free to go. But that separation, that time of separation, would accentuate the merit and the and worthiness of all life. That was the purpose that God set up these two punishments. The reality is we need to maintain that same attitude towards life today. This truth that life is sacred and of high value is why Christians should be at the forefront of efforts to show the value of all life today. We should not be afraid to speak out about the evils of abortion. We should not be afraid to reach out with grace and love to the women who have gone through them. We should not be silent. In fact, we should be advocates for the disabled and for integrating people with mental or physical handicaps into the life of the community because Life is valuable. We should be involved in efforts to limit or do away with those things that destroy and waste so many lives. Did you know that there's a petition circulating South Dakota right now, right, right this time, to make assisted suicide legal in this state? Euthanasia. Even if they try to pretty it up by making it sound nice by calling it death with dignity or anything else is something that should deeply concern us. We should speak out. Why? Because life 
is valuable. And that's what these cities of refuge teach us. I think there's one other lesson, and I'm just going to mention it as we close. God is a God of justice. So if you ever think that you've been treated unfairly, that you've gotten the short end of the stick in this life, I want you to remember we serve a God who is a God of justice. And there will come a time when He will make all things right. So you don't have to be the one out there fighting for your rights or trying to make things fair because that's going to be an effort in frustration and futility. You can entrust yourself to God who is a just and fair God and will recompense for every deed in the way it should be recompensed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for, for your word. And, and sometimes it's hard to see the application to us, and yet other times it's easy. God, we would pray that as we think about these things that you had set up in ancient Israel, we would understand that they do have meaning for us today. God, we pray that we would have the same heart that you have towards life to value it. And God, we ask that we would be people who would stand in and would wait for your justice to take place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.